All right, everyone. The unanimous hour is upon us. I'm Brian, and I'll be your guide through the mysterious and mystical world of the Lungfish Catalog. We'll be unfolding a song a show and talking to folks who were moved and changed by this music. And sometimes, like today, we'll be lucky enough to talk to the folks in the direct orbit of this band. Today we've got Mitchell Feldstein on the show, and it was a huge honor to be able to inaugurate this uh, show with one of the key architects of their sound. I'll also be doing a highly subjective and very personal exegesis of the song Come Clean with this week's other guest, Colin Bain. But first, let me come clean on my history with this band, why they mean so much to me that I would spend hours and hours every couple weeks putting together episodes exclusively about the lyrical themes, the music, the experience of them live. So, as a teenager, I recall seeing Reptile House a few times, because I grew up in Northern Virginia, and they would play D.C. here and there, and I saw them in Baltimore once, and they were always a fascinating band to see. Daniel, pre-beard, was all over the place, spastically spouting out these songs. The music was post-punk and dark as much as hardcore, and the music took on a more psychedelic tone as the band went on. It was always just kind of mind-expanding for me to hear this stuff. And so, once they broke up, and I kind of were off my radar for a while, after a couple years, I see this band playing at one of those massive DuPont Circle shows that would happen outdoors, that would have just every band you could think of. You know, I think I saw... At this one show, Scream played, Ignition, Beefeater, Admiral from from Philly, uh, and Lungfish. So the first Lungfish show I saw was outdoors, and it couldn't have been more perfect. I was instantly captivated, and the just drawn in by not only Daniel's magnetism as a performer, but the music's hypnotic driving pulse and the uh, hard-to-grasp amount of poetic, deep, insightful lyrics. You know, from the get-go, I was a convert. So I would go to as many times as I saw Lungfish play, I would be there for communion with that energy, with that sound. I would go to the Gospel of Lungfish. And I moved away from D.C. area probably around 91, I believe, maybe 92. So I saw them a lot in that period and followed their music through record afterwards and would catch them anytime they would come through town. I was lucky enough to be in bands that opened for them a couple shows. You know, there's a Denver show that I believe we talk about in the interview, incredibly memorable, and there was... uh, a show at Gilman Street that my band opened for them around 2000 or 2001. It was an honor to share the stage with these guys. You know, I was 
one of the last bands that Scott Records out that I was in even had a song called Daniel. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, these guys were huge to me. But, you know, what is it about them? Why are they so important to me and to so many people around the world? That's what this show is about exploring. Because to me, their music was hypnotic, it was engaging, it was so visceral, and yet, you know, despite the power of them live and on record, the message that would come through and that kind of was a thread throughout their entire catalog kind of created a whole worldview that was uh, in simpicato with my worldview and with the kind of things going on in my head and my soul all throughout you know, my teens up through my 20s, 30s, 40s to today. So it was really an honor to be able to talk to Mitchell as my first guest on the show. Uh, deep bow thanks to him, as well as to Colin Bain for uh, taking such a deep dive on the song, Come Clean. And speaking of Come Clean, the song is rife with religious imagery. And I'll just say, as a little biographical note of myself, I didn't grow up uh, with much religion in the house. My parents didn't regularly go to church or synagogue. My mother was Christian, my dad Jewish, and they never pushed it on me, and I appreciate that. And my interest in Western religion always leaned towards the mystic side of things. You know, as I got old enough to discover such things in my teens, I was drawn to groups like the Scenes, offshoot purist group of uh, mystic Christians in the very early days right after Jesus who were vegan and lived communally. just kind of seemed like they walked the walk and lived in spirit so you know people like them the Knights Templar the Rosicrucians and on the other side of things on the Jewish side of things I became very fascinated with with systems like Kabbalah and authors like Martin Buber but the you know the visionary mythic elements I had very little interest, in fact, a deep aversion from childhood even to the hierarchy and force-fed establishment of and hypocrisy of the church, church system. I often wonder what Dan Hicks's exposure to Western religion was in his upbringing, if it was around or how he... Uh, ingested and interpreted it because you know he's obviously spoke before in interviews in fact my last interview with him about his attachment to mythology and it makes sense that the mythological element of the bible and of christianity would appeal to him that current kind of seems to seep through many of the songs and before we get into our conversations with Colin and Mitchell, just like to read a quick little quote from William Irwin Thompson's book, 
the time falling bodies take to light. Just, I was recently reading this and this jumped out at me as being very relevant to Daniel Higgs and Lungfish's vision. So, he writes, When the rational historian has come in to take away authority from the mystical and tribal bard, the artist has returned to create new forms of expression to re-sacralize, re-enchant, re-mythologize. And that sounds a hell of a lot like the work of Daniel Higgs to me. So, with that, let's get on with the show. First we'll hear from Colin Bain, then we'll jump right into the interview with Mitchell Feldstein. I guess just yeah. just for starters, uh, my name is Colin Bain. I'm from Denver, Colorado. I lived in Washington, D.C. for about 13 years, beginning in 1994. Flattered to be invited to discuss this song in particular with you because the, the very first time that I ever heard Lungfish or even heard of Lungfish, I was actually going to see your band, Savalas, play with them at the Fallout Shelter in Denver. Uh, this was in between the release of Necklace of Heads and Talking Songs for Walking. And I, you know, that what Necklace of Heads was not a record that I owned or had ever heard. So I was really only going to the show to see your band. And uh, Lil Oat was another friend's band that was on the bill. And zero expectations of what this headliner band was about and just completely blown away. It's funny now that. Uh, you know, some Facebook groups and d- different online forums exist for talking about some of this music uh, yeah. that, you know, people have, like in the last year, I've seen, like I have a flyer from that show and uh, I've seen people post photos from that show and there are, there's a 16 year old me standing in the front line of this concert watching and just in awe. Yeah, Bob Rob Medina uh, recently posted the set list from that show. And this song Come Clean that we're going to talk about was the second to last show on that set list or the second to last song on the set list. So it's just kind of a, I don't know, it's an interesting touch point that you that you invited me to talk about this very first song. Because, you know, you and I got to see this song performed live together in roughly the era that it was released and, and Lungfish was touring in support of that record so oh, kind yeah. of a put, per, cool personal touch point for both of us there 
Yeah, yeah. And and as uh, Daniel seems to live his life uh, amongst those synchronicity moments, it, it's apropos of the first show of this, yeah, of this show. <laughs> absolutely. I, I remember it. It, it was just this sort of like sensory overload experience where it was in this like weird basement venue that was super hot and sweaty and blistering loud. And it was just kind of like everything all at once and, and just mind blowing in a way. Like, like I said, I was, you know, a scrawny 16 year old kid and had come to the show with a couple of friends with no expectations and just, had never really experienced anything like that and, and really nothing else. I mean, you and I are both lungfish fans. Nothing like that really exists else <laughs> outside of lungfish. Absolutely. I mean, you, you touched on the venue. It, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> part of the story was that, you know, we got there, Bob had set up the show and got the day wrong or something. So that it was all locked up and we broke in and set up in the basement <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, your band, uh, you, Bob, Rob, Sonny, especially, were kind of an entry point into the into the music scene for me, uh, you know, the Denver music scene, but also, mm-hmm. you know, Bob and Sonny booking shows was was my first introduction to a lot of that DC music, Lungfish, Fugazi, Hoover, you know, Shudder to Think, those were all bands that Sonny and, and Bob Rob were bringing to Denver. And I ultimately, you know, a couple of years after that show we're talking about, moved to D.C. for, for college and, and stayed for 13 years, really drawn by that music and that scene that, that was really introduced to me by you guys in some ways. Oh, that's that's really cool to hear. And see, I didn't even know that you had uh, lived in D.C. for so long after that. That's that's mm-hmm. oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> we both did our time. <laughs> Why don't we uh, get into the song itself? Okay. Very first Lungfish song released. First yeah. song anyone ever, anyone heard at the time of the band, anyhow. Something that is really interesting to me about it is that in uh, the context of hearing the, the album that came next, this song actually feels like a sequel to the song Descender. And... Mm-hmm. And it even and it, it it even references that that song directly, in it and it sort of so the so the later song almost like reads like a prequel in in a way when you get to it to this song, so I really think of them as kind of like sister songs or mm-hmm. certainly part part of a a body of work that references itself, which is kind of intriguing to me and and is something that happens in a lot of lungfish lyrics where yeah you get absolutely. these sort of like intertextual references. That's a great point about it. Uh, this second song being like a prequel, because that's one of the things that stood out to me when I first heard the song, even is that the very last lines are kind of like the beginning lines of a regular song of like a blues, trope. <laughs> you know, I woke up this morning. <laughs> right. I think it's interesting that he even like references this other song. And he's like, I told you before I heard the, the song she sung. And later, you know, later the Necklace of Heads EP got packaged on the CD. And like, if you're listening to it on streaming services now, it, it's kind of appended to the end of the uh, Talking Songs for Walking. And so in that sequence, it makes more, it makes more sense. But if you were encountering it first on, on vinyl in like 1990, before that second record came out, 
it's, it's sort of this mysterious line. Absolutely. And it, it kind of is the beginning as well. I'm noticing he references this, if not figure, he commonly references her. She said she sung, she, you know, gave him this wisdom. There's this female kind of muse that mm-hmm. that floats through a lot of the songs, it seems. Well, and, and uh, you know, particularly in the context of these two songs, it's like really specifically an angel. Mm-hmm. And in that, in that, in the, in the later song, you hear about this angel who's got tattered uh, feet and cuts, cuts in her feet and trash in her hair, but, but is this like figure that is like awe inspiring, like religious experience kind of mm-hmm. figure. And then, and so, you know, in Come Clean, you get a lot of talking about like trying to get to heaven and. I don't know. It's, 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 it's kind of this like interesting, again, like there's a lot of themes in lungfish songs over the entire body of work that really start from the very first song where he's talking about a really complex, contradictory religious experience that, uh, you know, he's, he's converted in some, like in, in, in Descender song, he talks about like, she converted me without a word. But in this song, he's like, you know, talking about climbing up to heaven and tearing it all down. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of this like interesting, uh, I don't know, it's, it's just like a really big, expansive take on religious experience that is conflicted in some ways. It's it's not like, very much I don't know. So. Yeah. You know, one thing that I didn't even, because I, I didn't grow up Christian or Catholic for that matter, but like really going over this song intensely somehow all these years i missed that you know the ladder he builds the ladder to the sky to heaven where, where the angels are it's it's a jacob's ladder reference mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that that right before he says cataclysm he says catch catches however you say it catch, catches mm-hmm. you know uh which is a, a catholic you know oral tradition of uh imparting wisdom so this you know he definitely has all this biblical imagery right from the start like you said Mm -hmm. and apocalyptic you know he's a lot of apocalypse and in the lungfish universe and and oncoming apocalypse and it starts right here i think the other thing that's kind of interesting to me is that you know dan higgs is in some ways uh, especially at, at the time that this record came out was probably more famous as a tattoo artist than as a poet or a singer. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's this kind of like obsession with not just religious experience, but religious iconography and, oh, and, and graphics and symbolism. And so, you know, he's talking about, like you said, Jacob's ladder, but there's this kind of like all seeing eye that he's mm-hmm. like talking about getting to heaven and seeing like a whole lot of eyeball and mm-hmm. there's just like all this like yeah i don't know it's, it's like a really gra- yeah it's like a really graphic kind of uh description and uh, like heavy symbolism but i i picture in his mind or in his journal where these lyrics are like like almost like actual tattoo kind of designs of some of this kind of imagery that he's discussing yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense I wrote a note about that too, somewhere around here, but uh, 
yeah, that whole part where he talks about the eyeballs and the motorcycle wheels and the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the laundry list of kind of what could be tattoo imagery. Right. I think it's interesting too, that the, the song opens with points of light mm-hmm. and he's talking about, um, you know, a, a billion points of light. It's clear listening. I, I've spent a lot of time with the entire Lungfish discography and it's, it is clear that this guy is a reader. He's a deep reader mm-hmm. and, and an expansive reader. And, you know, you, the, the thousand points of light George Bush was talking mm-hmm. about at the RNC, like just two years before this record came out. But yeah, that's definitely. actually a, that's actually a phrase that's in like Arthur C. Clarke sci-fi from the forties and is in William Burroughs and is in the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. And it's just sort of like an interesting, uh, he opens with it and like, you can't help but think about this, George Bush speech uh, or these other textual references. And he's like, you know, it calls to mind video screens and constellations and this kind of like heavenly imagery that, that he launches into, but that's like the very beginning of the song. Yeah. That goes into kind of the very layered with symbolism method of his writing. It's, Mm -hmm. it's rarely one linear storyline or, or idea it, it worked, you know, there's all these different things going on, like we said, with the spiritual yearning, the uh, spiritual rebellion, but also the kind of social political stuff with the points of light and all the imagery of melting metal and blistering asphalt and mm-hmm. kind of all this, uh, you know, which could point to the points of light to the nuclear possibilities and, and to it taking place in the holy land as well you know bringing it back to the to to that element one of the things that i'm like kind of interested in and and i'm not a religious person kind of a full-on atheist really Mm -hmm. but it's interesting where how um he builds these kind of religious worlds and there's like a reference to a crude crown in the beginning, which is like a really clear biblical reference to like Jesus's crown of thorns and stuff. But then like almost like the very next breath, he's saying, if I could build the ladder high enough, I'd tear it all down for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I said that something about that earlier. It's just this like really interesting kind of conflicted religious experience of it's it's not a complete embrace and it's not like a complete takeover and it's just like yeah he's definitely not evangelical by any means yeah and and if anything it's it's you know he's he's in the mystic tradition of direct experience versus roles and laws and and man-made structures of religion at least it seems to be to me you know of course we can't speak for him you know, with the rain coming down like Buddhas at the end, and you know, mm-hmm. Grizzly Adams, of course. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of Catholic Catholic imagery in this one. I mean, even just kind of touching on that, uh, where he talks about ideation, procreation, and you know, where he's kind of going off with the poetic imagery in the final section. Right. It, like you said, it kind of points to his conflict with the the collective expression of of the religion perhaps 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that I enjoy about this song is it really feels like just torn straight out of a journal or a poetry book. Like I imagine him carrying around these books and, and jotting down ideas. And it just feels like, I don't know, very much. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of even who else would be a similar kind of feel like maybe Patty Smith comes to mind. Somebody mm-hmm. who is these like sure. kind of poet singer kind of vibe where you just like get all of these like really interesting images and ideas that, that set much bigger imagination cogs turning. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, Patty Smith's a great example. Someone like Jack Brewer from Saccharine Trust is another, mm-hmm. you know, these people that just throw out so many archetypes and multi-textural imagery that it's hard to even grasp onto, especially a first handful of listens. It just kind of washes over you and certain phrases or words, you know, embed right. themselves in your consciousness. Yeah. It'll be interesting as your series goes on because the like a lot of lungfish uh, is less raw in some ways than this song is. And mm-hmm. this song, the, it kicks off this, this record and kicks off the discography in this just like really raw blistering kind of way that is, I don't know, a little bit visceral and, and mm-hmm. loud. And, and like I said, when, you know, the first time I ever heard this music was live and it was the second to last song. And I just remember this being, just like a cacophony of a song <laughs> and it's uh you know later they kind of became known for this these like hypnotic vibes and repeating kind of riffs and and whatnot but this is this song just starts things off on a on a real spark i'm glad you you brought that up because i did want to talk about the the the, feel, the vibe of the song and the music as well like it uh, to me it's strange because it it's a big sounding song, uh, this monolith of the song, but at the same time, it, it doesn't feel like a lot of bands first, you know, a song kicking off of albums, usually like high velocity, like kick out mm-hmm. the jams kind of thing. This kind of sounds like something that's embedded in the middle of an album or mm-hmm. you know, middle of a band's career. So, it, you know, it starts with the, those big drums and the kind of dubby bass before it, Asa comes yeah. in with, some of his most kind of metallic sounding guitar playing. I actually didn't own this music until until the, uh, the until the uh, Talking Songs for Walking record came out with this kind of at the end of it. And mm. so for for most of my experience of Lungfish, like I think of this as kind of like a middle of an album song. It's mm. because because uh, the way it's tracked on that CD, you hear the the newer songs first right, and then right. and then this comes in so yeah i think and probably a lot of people experienced it like that yeah that's a good point it, it's interesting because except for a, f- a few later albums perhaps somehow to me this has like the biggest production of a lungfish album for many albums to come mm-hmm. it comes out of the gate just with really big sounding drums and guitars and they got kind of more minimal in the next couple albums. I remember the first time I heard it, I'd seen them a couple of times live. And then when the record came out, I got it. And to me, I was like, the first opening riff, I'm like, whoa, this sounds like Lungfish 
by way of Fugazi more than uh, what I remember of them live, right. especially with the production. But, you know, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, like I said, Asa's playing is a lot more aggressive on this this early stuff. Mm-hmm. He's even doing those kind of pinched harmonic things, metally accents here and there. And, you know, one thing I picked up on, like, since, you know, the song kind of starts with the bass, then Asa comes in doing the same thing. It's almost if you had took Asa out of the mix of the first of the verses, it would it would sound like a reggae song and the, the guitar would be doing the uh, uh, the counterpoint doing counterpoint melodies to what the bass is doing but asa comes in and lays in heavy with the same groove as also vocally this is kind of the first you really get that that raw dan higgs yowl and and growling and uh great screams but but at the same time within some of the verses you can kind of still hear elements of how he's saying with uh reptile house he he hasn't fully stepped into the tonalities that he would get to right yeah it's kind of interesting because you get some of both you get a little bit of this kind of like talky poet uh style that that he kind of later develops like and hones really to a t and but then you also get these like bigger screamier moments that that connect it to punk and hardcore in, in ways that are interesting but but also our departure points oh yeah definitely it's really it's really a band that um i just have listened to again and again and again across decades now and it's not just it's not just dan i'm you know i'm obviously a fan of his work and and his writing and his style in every way but it, it it's really uh, the core of the band with Asa and Mitchell, you know, just uh, very different than any other music that I knew at the time, certainly. And just a different approach to crafting songs and, and building layers of a song that then, then really exists in, in other places.
Thanks for uh, making the time to do this, Mitchell. I appreciate it. I appreciate you asking me. You know, it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and most likely this will be either the first or second episode of of the podcast dedicated to you guys' work. So, <laughs> yeah, I, a friend of mine mentioned that this was something that you were doing, and I wasn't really aware of that. I don't know. You know what? It's funny because I don't go to too many lungfish fan things obviously because you know be kind of weird and but there is one group on facebook and i kind of have been lurking there but i don't join because it'd be kind of dumb you know Mm -hmm. so but anyhow appreciate you doing that that's quite the uh you know it's it's a massive under yeah well it's a massive undertaking but it's it's i think it's uh overdue for the body of work that all of you guys made you know so absolutely I just found yesterday the interview you did with with Joe Wong. That was really good. Yeah, that was uh, quite the uh, undertaking. I did that actually in Jay Robbins' studio here in Baltimore. So that was, I think you know, yeah, I think Joe has a pretty high end uh, situation that he does. It's gotten pretty big, from what I gather. It's um, mm-hmm. it, do, you, do you know Joe? I don't know him. No. Are you out in California? I'm in California now. I grew up in uh, D.C., well, okay. Northern Virginia area. Yeah. Okay, so that's so you grew up with the Discord right. thing as your... I have actually probably, when I moved to Baltimore, I don't think I had ever... And I was really into music totally, you know, as from the age of 12 on or so. I don't think I really was that familiar with Discord until I had moved to Baltimore in the, in the mid-80s. So I kind of missed a lot of that early stuff, you know. Oh, interesting. What were you uh, drawn to musically before before you moved to Baltimore? Well, my first memories kind of are, or the ones that I remember, the, the memories that I remember, if that makes sense, pretty much are around music. And once I started listening to the radio, it kind of never stopped. My parents were very, there was always music in the house, and I'm a little older than some people. Um, so the music of the day, you know, there was always AM radio and the records in the house. Mm-hmm. My mother was a bit of a musician. She wrote her like high school class songs. So she was, you know, she was a musician. We always had a piano in the house. 
and I just always um, grew up in that era with AM radio, uh, kind of this silly British invasion Motown oh, yeah. stuff. The, the, the first record that I heard, and it still freaks me out to this day, was the, when I heard the first Black Sabbath album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a powerful one. I remember I, my first uh, intro to it. I was already into the punk scene, and it was the furthest thing from cool in the punk scene to say you liked Black Sabbath, but it that's they uh, definitely tapped into some deep uh, things there. And, well, when I heard it, I was 12 or 13 and had just probably had just you know come out and I can still remember hearing it and I was scared to death, but I was exhilarated at the same time. And, you know, and any serious mus rock musician that I know loves, you know, when I, when I say Black Sabbath, I just mean basically the first six albums, you know, of really, course, of course. Yeah. Really, <laughs> they will not, those albums are just the holy, holy, you know, so anyway yeah yeah that that's pretty uh, interesting i to jump ahead quite a bit i kind of missed a couple of lungfish albums in the mid era came back and heard necrophones and i was like wow there's some heavy almost sabbathy type of uh vibes to that one hmm. well you know i i can think back to you know our hours traveling in the van and you know, we all had varied musical taste and we, I think we influenced one another, but we all like pretty much Black Sabbath. I mean, I don't think anybody in the band would ever say that. We had discussions about album covers for hours, you know? <laughs> so that yeah. might be a bit of a, a stretch, but you know what I mean? I mean, I think Black Sabbath was a, is a touchstone for most serious rock musicians. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that also goes to the crucible of just how, with, with a lot of bands anyway, how informative those super long van rides and just absorbing whatever's playing through the different members, through the speakers by different members can uh, have sway on the direction of the band. And, and since we mainly, well, we, uh, yeah, pretty much mainly toured prior to the days of, you know, headphones and ear yeah, pods, and we were, we basically all listened together. You know, we had a little cassette mm -hmm. deck and put it in and went from there. So it was, we weren't all sitting in a van totally isolated. We had to put up with each other, you know? Oh yeah. I remember fighting over the stereo many times in my old band vans. <laughs> what bands did you play in? Uh, yeah, nothing of note so much, but uh, the one band that opened for you guys in Colorado, oh, we were called Savalas and another band as in opened for you at Gilman later around huh. 2001 well, called the shivering yeah were you at that show in uh denver in that basement of like a closed exactly. oh uh -huh. yeah that that was pretty pretty crazy you know it was they broke in to make the show happen yeah i kind of <laughs> remember that sneak we all kind of were just standing out back and all of a sudden they come in now we all went in and denver's a strange city i think it um it doesn't reveal itself i think you have to be there for a while to figure it out and I remember we went to a record store. Was it Wax Tracks in Denver? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I remember going, we spent a lot of afternoons there, you know, on tour. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a super influential show for, for my band, but also for a lot of the people there. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's move backwards again then. When did you 
began on drums and what drew you to that? I, like I said, I was from a fairly musical family, although my mother never pursued it sort of professionally or anything. So I was always drawn to music and I played a couple. I think I tried to play piano a little and guitar a little and it was a struggle. And then, like I think I mentioned earlier and on other times, uh, one day I was in the car banging, tapping to a song and I think someone said, hey, do you want to play drums? And I said, yes. So that it kind of went from there. So how did you come into the orbit of the Longfish guys? It was, it was after Reptile House, I take it, that you met them? Um, no, 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 no. I, I, I was born and raised in Philadelphia and mm-hmm. moved to Baltimore in, I think, early 1985. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Or, yeah, yeah, it was early 85. You know, I was here, I, had a, I came for a job and, and was, had played drums in a couple of bands in Philadelphia. Good bands, but bands that never played out. Only played a couple gigs and only did some very limited recording, but never released anything. So, of course, back, I, I moved here and I was here for a few months. And I think back in those days, you either went to record stores and looked on the bulletin boards for uh-huh. people put up little notices or maybe read in the, in the local um, city papers, which I think are basically all gone. You know, I either answered in that or, or did, somehow I, I ended up meeting Dan, one of da- Daniel's cousin and we became friends and we sort of played in a couple bands. So that's how that, I got me, I got me into that orbit of, as you would say, of uh, that circle of, of musicians in Baltimore that are in the, were in the underground music at the time and what, whatever you called it. I uh-huh. guess 85 was post-punk and pre-indie rock even. So whoever, the folks that were into that kind of music, and that's how I got uh, got to meet Daniel and Asa and all, and all those folks. Sure. And what was it about what you heard from them that made you decide that you really wanted to be a part of it? Well, I'm trying to think back. What happened was... I had played with uh, Daniel's cousin, Joey Siri. Joey, we were playing a couple bands and somehow I met Asa and Asa and I actually played in a band before at Lungfish together. And we did some recording. Um, what was the played, band called? Uh, the band was called Per Capita. And we played out, you know, we played a few gigs and, and Baltimore is a small town. So everyone kind of knows everybody in a small scene. Like I th- think they say, if you, whatever you're into, you're going to meet those 50 people within a, matter of months that are into it so ace and i were playing and reptile house was an ongoing concern still and of course everybody knew reptile house in baltimore and front and afar even and i got to see them a couple of times and they were monstrously good um mm-hmm. and so that's how that all kind of developed ace and i played for a couple of years and then i think asa had met daniel and ace actually played in reptile house at the very very end of the um of its uh, existence for a, for a year or so so Ace and I were jamming and we actually jammed together with Daniel once and it went really, really well. And we all looked at each other. This was way before Lungfish was even a thought. And we all looked at each other and we said, hey, this is, sounds pretty good. And the guy was playing bass said, nah, this is too loud. So it kind of, you know, killed that germ <laughs> right there. But we sort of knew in our minds and we were all kind of hanging out in the same little scene. And, um, and Lungfish was a band actually before I was even in it. Yeah, I heard you say that on the other yeah. podcast interview. I was surprised. I didn't know that. Yeah, they were around for about a year. Reptile has had broken up. Ace and Daniel 
play together. And they were, and Gary, who's, I, and I, I apologize. I should, I, I don't want to mispronounce his last name, but the drummer from the last incarnation, I hit the drummer from the, they formed Lungfish with John Christ. Mm. And so I actually got to see Lungfish before I was in it. Wow. And I'm not going to lie. They were fucking great. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying that they were great when I was in it as well, but I saw them before I was in it. And, uh, you know, it was something to see and, and hear. It was pretty exciting. And, you know, all that time I played a couple local bands here and there and I was playing. I kept playing. And and I remember hey, we're all friends. And I was always said to Ace, hey, man, if you ever need a drummer, et cetera, you know, so that happened eventually. So mm. when you guys did start playing and, and you realized that it was going to be something, something that was to whatever extent sustaining, what, were there any kind of discussions about direction or about the mission of the band or was it just kind of all unspoken? Well, I think we knew, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it without sounding. Um, but when there's a person like Daniel involved, you sort of not heed his word, but you take his word seriously. Sure. And we kind of knew what we wanted to do. And, and it was, Everyone's voice was always heard, you know. We just had a feeling that this was going to happen, and we knew we had a good base with Daniel. You know, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, sure. And uh, and Asa, and I guess myself, and uh, John Christ was the, the, the he was the original bass player, and we did. There was it, it just sort of took on its own life. We were playing gigs, and I think, of course, Ian becoming a a fan was a big. <laughs> You know, I think Ian joining forces with us was our big uh, step forward, shall we say. Sure. Yeah, of course. I guess we had played enough gigs and we sort of had like an immediate response, you know, because um, Reptile House was such a powerhouse and and we just played in Baltimore and I think we did a couple gigs in D.C. And I have to admit the response was kind of there from the beginning, you know. Mm-hmm. at least in the local area you know we never had to um fight locally playing in front of nobody right yeah that's that's my memory of the earlier shows i saw i think the first time i saw you guys i want to say i'd seen reptile house a couple of times and then there was a dupont circle show with a ton of bands some kind of benefit and you guys played and and I was like, oh, that's Danny from Lungfish. I right. mean, from uh, Reptile House. Was I in the band then? That's what I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember that gig, but I think by then I was. So, mm-hmm. but I just don't remember ever playing. You know what? Now I think I do. I thought I remember being there, but not playing. But, you know, memories, a, uh, a tricky, you know. a tricky yeah. beast. Yeah. 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 So. Were you at the, I know we played a gig in DC with Nation of Ulysses. Were you at that show? I don't recall. Do you remember where it was? It was in a strange little venue off of Florida Avenue, maybe? Mm, maybe not. And, I don't. And that was a pretty, and I'm not going to say, you know, important or anything like that, but I think that was a pretty seminal event mm. where, you know, we played with Nation of Ulysses, both sort of starting out and, that I remember that that was a pretty big gig down in the, in the DC area. Yeah, yeah. 
do you have memory of uh, writing the songs for Necklace of Heads? I really, that kind of escapes me. I'm going to have to admit, I, I just don't. Um, That's okay. Why that is, I'm not going to speculate, <laughs> <laughs> but, I just, but, I, but I just don't, you know? Sure. Yeah, well, then let, let's talk uh, more specifically about your your playing and your style. Like your drumming's always had, you know, I think of it as having power without bashing. Like you weren't one of those, you know, punk rock bashers. You had a very consistent, almost heartbeat type of uh, drum style with a lot of space. Mm. Well, I think being a little older, I didn't grow up with punk. I, I was in the, you know, I, I, I was a little older when punk came. I love punk rock. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, it was, mm -hmm. you know, but I grew up listening to um, an, an earlier gen, like more, um, like I said, Black Sabbath, Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stones in mm -hmm. the late sixties and glam rock was a big influence on me. David Bowie, T-Rex, that kind of stuff, the Velvet Underground. Sure. Um, and I think with Lungfish, I think it was pretty clear that they didn't want a drummer that was going to play all over the place. They wanted someone just to sort of keep the background solid. And I was more than happy to fill that role, you know? Sure. And not saying that I could have done more. I mean, I think I did, you know, but I think that was sort of the impetus of what was needed for the songs. You know, they were a vehicle for Daniel's lyrics a lot, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And when I remember you guys live, I always felt like you were both kind of keeping everything in orbit keeping everything together but also uh in a way the drums almost conduct the rest of the band it felt like mm. well mm. i don't have any thoughts about that honestly <laughs> <laughs> that's all right and you know i i think lungfish was always a very 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 organic band it was not well thought out it was not pre-planned we sort of got together and we practiced a lot and we played a lot together and we kind of wrote the songs all together. Mm. So Ace and I spent about six months in his basement and we wrote two albums worth of songs when Daniel had moved out to California. So, I mean, we just played a lot and practiced a lot together and there was never really a leader, you know, we just sort of all got together and jammed. Which, I mean, is the definition of organic. You kind of uh, learn each other's languages and we were, we were all, nobody was trained. No one was, you know, we, we didn't have the one guy in the band that was a classically trained, you know, celloist <laughs> or anything. We all just sure. sort of plugged in and tuned up our instruments and played as best we could, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As the band went on, as the records kept going around the middle of you guys' uh, arc, I start noticing more tribal and uh, polyrhythmic things going on with with your playing what just happened happened I, I there there was really no explanation for it i don't think we had any big plan mm. it just sort of all worked out together there was four people well sometimes two sometimes two or three people sometimes four people with them and we just sort of wrote songs and um daniel either Generally, I think we wrote the music and Daniel put the lyrics to them, you know. I noticed in the earlier era, definitely the the John Christ era, the, the bass had a lot more room in the sound, I would say. Mm. Whereas later it became more 
uh, with with the later players more. It, it wasn't static, but it was a lot less notes, a lot more just the very, very low end. Well, I think John had a unique style of playing that was probably not, he had a very strange, I remember I'm, I'm thinking that the way his hands played, he had like a, almost like a claw, like a banjo player or something, the way he played the bass hmm. as opposed to, and I think when Nathan and Sean played, there was more of a bottom end, you know, more of a deep bottom end type thing. We got that the sound had changed. Mm-hmm. Maybe we we got louder as a band, you know. Right, that makes sense. And so, you know, you guys, to to my mind, you know, there's lots of bands that do, but you guys kind of epitomize that group mind sound, where once you guys get together and play, it's a whole nother thing than if you know it's one or two of you, you know. Uh, I've had experiences of that here and there with music where once you start, especially live playing a, playing a show with the band, you're no longer thinking of what your part is. You're just serving the, the thing that's been awakened in that moment. Mm. Well, I think the songs like we weren't, we didn't jam live because the songs had were structured sort of within Daniel's lyrics. So he played to those lyrics as a group, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. so we, like, sort of the whole organic that we weren't a jam band. We weren't going to, like, jam out <laughs> on a song for a half hour. You know, we, we we used to practice. We used to kid around, and we used to just sort of um, jam, and we could. We did It was fun, but we wouldn't, didn't do it live because that wasn't what Lungfish was as a band, you know? Mm-hmm. Who, who would do – was there one person? Was it Daniel? Was it Issa? Who would come up with, say, the uh... – you know, both the live set list and even the track listing on the LPs? Uh, I, I'm i going to say live. I think, I think Daniel came up with the sets live. In terms of the track listings, I think that was a kind of a group effort, you know, between all of us, including Ian sometimes and Don Zentera sometimes. And, you know, they were all part of the, that extended when we were in this in the, and. Tim Green, when we recorded with him, I think it all was whoever was involved in the session. We all, every, everybody's input was always valued. Mm. Whoever was involved in the um, session. Yeah. And I saw older interviews where you guys would talk about just playing for each other. It gave the sense of not even like, is in a practice, but that you got together and would just play to play. Me at we not at a gig but when we yeah, were just rehearsing. Yeah. Well, you, you know what? I remember when we used to practice, and we practiced a lot when we practiced. We might have practiced um, three, four nights a week for th- three or four months. You know, when we were maybe recording for a record, things like that. We didn't just go to get together and you know ha- hang out for a half hour. I mean, we prep. We played hard. And we always played as hard as we could. It was even in practice. It was like a gig, you know. In fact, I used to say, this was back in the, say, why don't we um, get a video camera and, we, and just put these practices up on, you know, on the, on the internet. It'll be great. But, you know, um, I, I used to think that would be a good idea, you know, back in the day. Why don't we just broadcast our practices because we're fucking playing a gig here, basically, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, 
That would be amazing, I'm sure. I mean, Daniel never let up in practice, man. He always went full full bore, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that absolutely makes sense. I, I've I've talked to him a handful of times over the years, and you you get that sense even in a conversation, much less uh, anytime he's performing. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say is your uh, has has been your your philosophy towards playing you yourself? Well, well, I don't play anymore. So um, I haven't played drums. The last time I played, uh, I played with a good friend of mine, Will Good, who you may know from the Wilderness, from the Wilderness. Uh-huh, you, uh-huh. you know the band at Wilderness? Yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah, I jammed with Will Good for a while. I think we did some recording, but, you know, I and before that I played on, um, I played for a year with a band involved. Baltimore and now from beyond uh, called Arboretum, but I don't play anymore. So I don't really have a philosophy anymore about my drumming. Not that it's in the past. I mean, once a drummer, always, you know, once, yeah, you know, all, all that bullshit, but I never had a philosophy. I just felt that um, I wanted to be a drummer. I wanted to be a musician and I was, you know, hmm. you didn't have, just, yeah. Huh? I'm sorry. No, it's hard. You, you didn't have, uh, you know, even as a, uh appendages you grow as you're <laughs> over time as a musician whether you think about it or not a lot of people you know end up unspoken or spoken having these kind of personal rules for what they think makes a good or or not good performance or what's essential for you know that instrument or that that well, delivery I always said that no matter what, we always gave it our all. You know, we always tried as hard as we could. We never slacked off. So that's just give, I mean, I think in life, just do the best you can, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I just, I never had a personal philosophy because I never thought about it that way. I just, it was sort of, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to do it as good as I can do. And that's all you, that's what you're supposed to do with everything in life. I'm, I'm doing, I'm giving it my best right now. I know it may not sound like it, but I'm trying, man. No, yeah. And yeah, as often the case as with pretty much any philosophy, religion, uh, teaching, et cetera, the, the most simple is the most profound and most resonant. So that makes sense. That's a good way of putting it. We never, we didn't really ever, and, and this, and maybe that, comes through in the music with a lot of people we didn't really overthink it i think we were just pretty lucky that we had a pretty like i said organic thing going you know between myself daniel asa and whoever was playing bass you know and equally all three guys were you know best friends and you know colleagues and crucial you know oh yeah along with ian and don and tim whoever was recording us the whole bit you know lawrence back in the day Everybody, you know, we were all part of the, the process, you know, our road managers, whoever was with us, whoever was with us at the time, we were all in it together. There was never, it was an egalitarian, we split everything, you know, we, we mm-hmm. did everything, you know. And I mean, what, where you can't really pinpoint you guys is say a punk band, that ethic is about as punk as you can get. Mm. And so, so I guess when I think of, punk i think of 1976 so i think punk is different to me maybe than what you might think of as punk mm-hmm. punk to me was getting fucked up and you know raging 
Yeah, I mean that's that's one kind of offshoot of it for sure. I mean, there wasn't hardcore back then. That was probably before that had started. And I personally was never hardcore, you know. But um, I appreciated it all the uh, all the different angles. And but um, yeah. So when I think of punk, I have something different comes into my um head. Sure. You know, you you touched on it in the trap set interview, but how did you come into writing poetry and just writing in general had that been Mm. something you had done for a while i don't think i ever had but you know when you're again you're you're spending a lot of your time with a pretty profound writer and it was always supportive um and i would probably jot some things down eventually you know and i basically probably started writing in my downtime in the van kind of thing and it wasn't something I was driven to do as a young person or anything. So I probably started at that point and was encouraged by my friends to keep writing. And I thought it was something I was pretty, if not good at something I enjoyed to do. And, and my ego is such that if I want to, if I want to pursue something, I'll present it. So just like I presented my music and even before Longfish and bands, like, I was like, when are we going to play a gig? That kind of thing. I, when I was writing, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go out and do readings. And mm-hmm. again, being in a city like Baltimore that has a very small, coherent and supportive uh, scene, you can quickly, you know, get yourself ingratiated to um, with some great writers, you know, and I did. And I felt that um, I was given the support and the um, encouragement. And that's how I, you know, I figured that's something I can do. And I'm, it's easier to, for me to do now because I don't have to, I can do it myself. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I can do it in my spare time when I have some time. And so that's why I write. And, that's, and I think it's, I, I enjoy doing it. I've gotten sufficient encouragement and sufficient sense that it's not a waste of time. So. Is it a, you kind of answered it, but is it a, a practice you do or is it just when inspiration strikes? Well, you know, I'm, no, well, no, I shouldn't say, unfortunately, I don't have, you know, I don't wake up at 930 and have a pot of coffee and look at the look out the window. I do have I do work. So I, my time is limited. I'm not going to go into what I do. It's not important, but I have a career. So it's not a, you know, it's a it's a career. So I have to it takes time and it takes effort. And so I write and my, I think the style that I write in, it comes in little bits and pieces. It lends itself towards the type of writing that I do, which is um I think fairly sparse and short form poetry mm-hmm. and maybe a couple stories that are a little bit longer, but it just seems to be the, the way that I enjoy writing. So. Like I said, in our correspondence, I have one of the books in the uh, cassette. Uh, have you published the stories? Um, have I published? Yeah, they're, they're not really stories. They're just, they're just the longer pieces. I think in my, in the book, uh, by the book come out in 2001 on Shattered Wig, thanks to Rupert Wadalinski with uh, Normals. And that has some longer pieces in there. They're not like stories, like a short story or anything. There might be like a page or two, like shorter pieces, like reflections on something that happened in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what, what struck me about your style is if I read your work, I wouldn't instantly think of of Daniel's work by any means. So, you know, one, that's a good thing. Well, and, and I, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, Daniel, 
is a singular artist. I don't think uh, trying to Im imitate his work would do me any good or anybody else any good. Yeah, exactly. He's already out there, right? So, you know, your your work. What struck me is is the uh, the word that keeps coming up for me is juxtaposition with uh, kind of everyday observations and and little moments of time and th stray thoughts, but mm -hmm. juxtaposed with a lot of language that makes you stop and uh, approach the the things you're bringing in a, a different light than you would if you just wrote very uh, linearly. I, well, I guess a little more abstract, a little more experimental um, would be my style. I'm not a, I never took a writing class or uh, anything, or I don't even know what formal poetry structure is. And even though I've read some poetry in my life, but I think it's more experimental and it does, a lot of it does come from, things that I see every day or experience and then try to just, like you said, juxtapose that with maybe some language that I use and my love of music, um, that kind of stuff. So I try to combine those two things. I think that's an astute observation. I appreciate that. Oh, definitely. And, and also, as I mentioned uh, to you personally, it, I would encourage people, there's a, a handful of the tracks from, I believe from the tape on YouTube of you reading your stuff and it gives a whole different as mm. with any poetry it gives a whole different take it, it helps to hear the author's personal rhythm and what's the word uh, inflections mm. to uh even get a, a a deeper read on the stuff yeah i've learned uh i think when i read try not you know you try not to read too fast and trying to try to get into that stereotypical poetry <laughs> You, I think you know what I mean. I, you yeah. try your hardest. Try my hardest not to do that. Absolutely. I mean, for writing and and for like you said, reading stuff. That's key is mm -hmm. to uh, avoid the tropes and the uh, yeah, the stereotypes. And, uh, you, you try. It's it, it's always difficult. And the one thing that I always try to do is is if if when I'm doing a reading, if I can get a laugh, it just makes me feel good. Making people laugh is. Um, that always makes brings me joy, you know. Oh yeah, it, it's a it kind of opens cracks people open a little bit. It's nice. With lungfish, when you when you think back on it, what do you take with you from that experience from that time? Well, I mean, not to get too maudlin, but I feel very lucky as a person to have had a dream as a 12 year old and to be able to fulfill that dream. I mean, there's nothing more you can really ask for in life. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, from yeah. the age of what, I mean, ever since I could ever, like I said, ever since I heard that first black Sabbath record, I said, you know, I think I want to, well, it'd be great to be in a band, you know, and I kind of kept at it and worked and worked and, you know, never gave up. And I mean, I could have given up many, many times, but I kept kind of, plowing away I was never the best drummer in the scene but I kind of was persistent and you know a band sometimes is what's the expression some of its part is that the right is the sum of its parts it's not you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know this a flashy guitar player or a, or a you know that's what I take from it that I, if, you, if you if you have a dream and again if it's not totally outrageous if you have some ability or whatever that dream pursue it and if you can do it then you're a lucky person you know yeah, yeah, absolutely. And having that kind of 
self-knowledge to acknowledge the gratitude for the the gift of being able to express yourself in whatever art and have it received and reflected back to you is yeah it's something beyond uh and i guess also i never you know when when i think about myself as a person i never think of myself as this that the other thing i'm just me and i do what i do and i sometimes i don't even think that i wasn't I mean, I'm not probably not expressing it correctly, but it's not like I you choose to do something. You do what you are compelled to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think especially when it comes to the arts, being an artist, a musician, you're just compelled to do it and you have to um, pursue it to the best of your ability. And uh, sometimes it works in a sense that a lot of people get to see that. And sometimes it works in that I could be the best fucking painter in, in the world and they're hanging in my bedroom, you know? It doesn't matter as long as you're compelled to do what you do as an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes to the, the purity of intent, yeah. which all great art, whether it's, you know, seen or not seen, like you said. And I guess as a, as a, I'm not, not as a fan, but as a person who's listened to that music, that comes, that comes through to you that you, boy, these guys really meant what they were doing here. They're not bullshitting here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think we never, you know, like I said, we always gave it our all. We tried as hard as we could, you know. Yeah, I mean, and that absolutely was uh, evident. I mean, every show, all you guys were sweating your asses off on stage and super focused. So you, you can't ask for more out of a band. How many times did you get out of the States with Longfish? Um, I'd say, I mean, it's off the top of my head, you know, between Europe and and we went to Japan a few times, maybe six, six or eight times. We flew, uh, maybe, uh, maybe about a, a 10 times because we flew to a couple like long weekend things in Italy and Spain a couple of times. And we went to Japan a couple of times, which is always, that was a, that was a very positive experience and getting, getting to play in England is all, you know, once that's sort of one of the times when I knew we were doing okay when people in England like us, cause you know, they kind of dig rock and roll music over there. Yeah, absolutely. And did you notice that, you know, uh, I mean, I guess there's differences even, of course, within different parts of the states, but what, what did you notice differences playing in different places over the, overseas as opposed to the states? No, um, I, you know, and I think part of it is the scene that we were involved in being in the Discord scene we sort of self-selected a pretty righteous scene to be a part of. You know, we weren't playing in some fucked up scene. People were of of like-minded people. And if if that makes sense, I think, you know, what I'm trying to get at, we sort of were lucky that we were playing for people that appreciated what we were doing. Like we didn't have to open up for, uh, you know, Motley Crue or something, you know? (laughs) Well, speaking of that, uh, how did the whole Joan Jett thing happen? Joan Jett, uh, she was a fan of the band. I think her, she, she approached us about touring with them for the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think we debated about it for a while. We were like, you know, what the hell? You know, it might be fun. And we, you know, and we just decided to do it. And she was amazing. She was a great person. The band, it was cut for me. You know, it, it was a fun experience. 
I mean, she wasn't that huge. She wasn't, she wasn't playing like arenas or anything. She was playing, you know, it was a fun summer with some real harrowing moments, but overall she just asked us and I think she was a fan and she asked us to play and we decided that we would do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> had to have uh, some, sur- as I'm sure happened often in different ways, some surreal, uh, surreal moments. I mean, I have some funny parts in my mind that if I ever did write a, a memoir of or a book, I, I might throw in there, but nothing crazy, you know, just some funny things that weren't quite, where where our world was from and how they thought we were what the fuck are these guys about you know they didn't like you know some of them didn't quite understand where we were from but yeah we all were friendly you know sure sure but there's no dirty laundry to air or anything about about the tour yeah that's not what i meant okay yeah it was just sort of an innocent fun time probably not our thing in the long run or our something we would have done again but i think it was worthwhile that we did it All right, folks, what looks like the unanimous hour is coming to a close. But stay tuned, in two short weeks we will return with next episode's guest Scott Torgerson talking about Put Your Halo On. And we'll also get part two of our interview with Mitchell. This has been a transmission of Friend to Friend in the End Time. (laughs) 